The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. Thanks for listening to a special episode of Democracy Paradox. In addition to the main podcast, I actually have a series of interviews with podcast hosts for monthly supporters at Patreon. The interviews include distinguished guests like Julia Zari, Bob Shrum, and Mila Atmos. I want to encourage all of my listeners to consider becoming a monthly patron. You'll get access to bonus content like this conversation, but more importantly, you'll help keep the show alive. Monthly supporters donate just $5, $10, or $20 per month. You'll find a link to my Patreon page in the show notes below. If you'd like to help the show in other ways, please email me at jkempf at democracyparadox.com. Now, today's guest is Dan Bannock. He is a professor of political science at the University of Oslo and the director of the Oslo SDG Initiative. He also hosts the podcast In Pursuit of Development. You'll find this is a fun conversation that weaves between topics of democracy to the role of the podcast to discuss these different topics. You'll find it's a bit more informal than some of the other episodes, but it also gives us an opportunity to let down our guard as well. So I hope you enjoy it. This is my conversation with Dan Bannock. Dan Bannock, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thanks, Justin. It's great to be with you today. Well, Dan, I've listened to a number of your podcasts. I love your podcast in Pursuit of Development. And you have a Short bio to yourself. You say that you're a professor in Oslo. You study questions of development along with democracy, even climate change. But I don't get a good sense of who you are and how you came to know so many of the guests that you have. Big names like Francis Fukuyama, Darren Nesemoglu. Let's peel back the layers. Can you give us a sense of, of who you are and how you became so interested in these topics? But Justin, I have to say, firstly, this is so fun because, you know, I'm on the other side now and you're asking me questions. Uh, This is absolutely delightful. So, you know, I was born in India many moons ago and I've lived in Norway for the last three decades and been an academic all my life. I really haven't had any other job. And uh, for for many, many years, I've been studying everything that is bad in the world, you know, underdevelopment, poverty, hunger, famines, you know, uh, corruption. And uh, so, so my PhD thesis was on famines in India. And my guru is Amartya Sen, the Nobel Prize winning economics. 
Uh, we share a very similar background, born in Calcutta, but lived most of our lives in the West. And over the years, you know, in my own research and through my contacts, research not just in India, but also increasingly in China, where I've had visiting professorships, also at Stanford, where I've had visiting professorships. And that's how I know people like uh, Frank Fukuyama. But also in our daily sort of interactions, you end up, you know, establishing a wide network. And so you end up meeting people in uh, sometimes in very strange situations, sometimes accidentally. But most of the people I have on my show are people I know. And and, uh, it's a combination of both junior colleagues, but also some extremely well-known people. So um, in that sense, I'm very lucky. Was there a moment when you realized this is the subject that I want to study? Was it something that just you kind of fell into while you were in college? Or was it something that you really realized earlier in your life? So, you know, since you host this fantastic uh, Democracy Paradox podcast, I have to say that a defining moment for me was, I think I was taking a class in human rights once at the University of Oslo here. And the professor in charge, who later turned out to be my supervisor, mentioned this sort of, um, well, in a way, it is a paradox that India, which is the world's largest democracy, has been able to prevent, you know, these major sensational visible famines on the one hand, and yet somehow accepts that there are these hundreds, perhaps, or thousands of so-called starvation deaths that are allowed to happen on a daily basis or every year. And this is the argument that Amartya Sen makes, right? So in many ways, there's this interesting dilemma that democracies are able to address major visible crises where people agree that, you know, this is a crisis that is worth addressing. And yet these, I suppose, silent, the silent hunger you know the 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 uh, the daily undernourishment of millions of people are not considered worthy of the same kind of attention that let's say a, a large scale famine does so that is what sort of got me attracted to this topic and so you know my masters and phd thesis became very sort of development focused even though i'm a political scientist i'm i work in an interdisciplinary environment you know trying to combine economics, political science, and and development issues. Yeah, I think that's what really lends your background well to a podcast, too, is this interdisciplinary focus. Because when, when your academic background, when everything that you've studied is something that's so hyper-specific that it's it's something that's a very narrow place in a very narrow country in a very narrow set of circumstances. It's difficult to be able to break out and start talking to so many different types of people about things that, that affect it. But I love the way how you describe your research in something that's incredibly broad, incredibly interdisciplinary, and I think lends itself incredibly well to conversations. Did you find that that helped you with the podcast, the fact that your approach was already interdisciplinary? Yeah, I, I certainly think it did. But you know what really gave me the sort of the momentum, the big push is COVID-19, right? So I, I was traveling quite a lot, you know, in the old days, you know, uh, teaching in China and India and Malawi, traveling to the US. I was often at Stanford. 
And uh, I was taking part in all of these discussions, you know, hosting seminars, moderating debates. And I realized that I never really had the time to really delve into podcasts. I wasn't listening enough, you know. I, I was perhaps concerned with everything else. And so, you know, backtrack to the 12th of March, 2020, I returned from a trip to Malawi. I was teaching there and I've been teaching there for like the last 15, 16 years. And that was the day Norway sort of closed down. So we, you know, imposed these harsh sort of quarantine restrictions. And uh, my family was not, you know, very eager to give me a hug because they didn't know if I was carrying the virus or something, you know. And the weeks and months that followed, I realized I really wanted to do something else. And so, you know, it, it became very sort of, uh, it just gave me that, that the, the kind of time and the boost I needed. And so in June of 2020, I, um, I started this uh, In Pursuit of Development podcast. It started, you know, very gradually with, with people I knew. And I thought, you know, I would experiment. I didn't have a proper microphone, Justin. You know, it was, you know, it, as you know, as a fellow podcaster, you know, sound quality is really, really key. I had like a, a okay microphone. And then, of course, you know, I've graduated and I've understood how, you know, important sound is. And after the initial, you know, um, season, uh, season one, uh, I realized that, you know, I, I got addicted, and as I'm sure you are too, right? So it was more about raising the profile, getting perhaps a bit, a better group of well-known guests. But for me, it's been very important to combine this. Um, you know, my, my, my guests are, they don't always, you know, represent the, uh, the most famous people. It's important for me to, to give my colleagues in the so-called Global South a voice, um, to have uh, a diverse group of people, you know, from different ethnic groups and uh, have women and men, you know, just I, it, it, to have a combination of junior scholars and senior scholars. I think that's very important because sometimes we get carried away, you know, just giving people who already have an amplified voice yet another channel. So I think it's it's been important in that sense for me to provide my listeners with a representative group of people who are interested in global development. Well, I think that the most impressive research oftentimes comes from people who have just finished their PhD. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I mean, they're the people who have just come back from doing the field research. They don't have families to tie them down. They've done extensive research um, in other countries oftentimes and have force themselves to be really in-depth as they put together that first book. And that's not just true today. I mean, we look at somebody like a Durkheim. I mean, um, The Division of Labor um, in Society, I mean, it's still one of the classic books in sociology and in politics. Uh, that was based off his PhD. But I mean, I look at people like Elizabeth Nugent, uh, Bryn Rosenfeld, um, so many different scholars that have written stuff that's not just good for a first book, but literally changes how you think about politics today sometimes. Yeah, so I think that's a very good point. You know, so it turns out last year, I think, um, I was the faculty opponent for a PhD, uh, Viva, a thesis defense at uh, Uppsala University in Sweden. 
And this uh, young scholar had done this uh, wonderful study of, um, of these dams in Myanmar, in Burma, and some of the environmental, you know, damages that these big dams are doing, how controversial they are, and the kind of resistance from local communities. And I had a wonderful conversation with her. And of course, all of this was happening from the basement of my house. I couldn't travel. Uh, and so I, I invited her, actually, after the successful defense, to be a part of, to be, a, to be on the show. And I very much enjoyed that. So I think, you know, we, we have to provide these voices to to emerging academics and, and also to um, scholars who are in certain parts of the world where podcasts are not that big and, you know, who often, you know, I don't know if you're aware of this. I mean, even in democracy studies, Justin, you know, we don't really refer to the kind of uh, scholarship that's going on in Africa in, in Asia and Latin America as much as we ought to do, right? So we end up citing the same people and it becomes very sort of Western focused. And I think it's very important that we that we broaden our perspectives and include these new voices that are often not heard. And yet they have very, very important things to say. Yeah, no, that's completely true. I mean, there's a problem both in terms of even just reporting on problems in places like Africa. But like you said, reporting or referring to voices from actually Africans themselves decolonizing the literature. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's tough because it's easy to be able to gravitate towards those voices that you see in Western literature. Uh, when you study Africa, it's easy to gravitate towards somebody like a Nick Cheeseman, for instance, who's well-known, but he's also a British scholar. But Nick Cheeseman himself does a fantastic job with his uh, project, Democracy in Africa, to help elevate those voices from Africa and to help decolonize the literature, even though he's working as somebody who's British, working in a British university, trying to elevate those other voices himself. Yeah. So Nick was a guest on my show and, you know, uh, I've known Nick for a while, but it turns out that both Nick and I actually faced a certain dilemma, uh, especially in the last two years, you know, because um, we've noticed this pushback also from many African scholars, African observers, who've often reacted to whenever Nick or even I have, I used to have a column, uh, a weekly column in a Malawian newspaper. And if I'd said something, or even on the podcast, referred to a certain country in a certain way or described a certain problem in a particular way, we would get this kind of backlash or response saying how, you know, why are you talking about us? You know, you are a foreigner and why would you know more about this country than me who is, you know, from that area? And so I realized that um, not that I've censored myself, but I think there's a different way in which we should undertake these conversations. And I think um, increasingly it's been important the last few years for me to co-author, you know, publications with my colleagues in Malawi or in India or China, etc. I think it's very important that we don't have just these global uh, sort of academics from the West talking about global development, but also have these local perspectives. I'll give you one particular example. I think in one of my earliest podcast uh, episodes on Malawi, I think I referred to the country that I love and I've been studying for the last 15 years as one of the poorest in the world. So in the introduction, I referred to that. 
And I got some response from my listeners. And this, these were early days where people said, you know, how, why do you, you know, why is it that you describe, everyone describes our country as one of the poorest? And I realized that that really is, you know, a valid point. I mean, Malawi is, you know, so much more than just being defined by its poverty. So I think these are things that got me thinking that we really do need an appro- a different approach, you know, that certain things you know, business as usual just wouldn't do. And and so we as academics have have an enormous responsibility. So that, that has been in many ways, you know, as I was referring to earlier, Justin, as been one of my goals to to broaden the discussion, to to involve, you know, newer voices, exciting voices, even though they may not be very well known. No, I I totally agree. And at the same time though, one of the great things about talking about places that are outside of your cultural zone mm-hmm. is that when you're talking to an audience, like when you're talking to Americans and you're able to talk about polarization in a distant place, it helps remove some of the politics from the discussion. Some of the tension about talking about Republicans and Democrats. If you talk about polarization in a country like Kenya that has a very different type of polarization, but has an intense amount of scholarship about polarization within its country. Um, When you talk about polarization within a country like India itself, you know, to be able to talk about a different type of polarization and help us maybe understand polarization in the United States without actually having to say anything about America itself, without bringing up Trump, without bringing up Democrats, Republicans, but at the same time, help us understand some of those concepts. Yeah, so I think you're raising a very important point here, because I do think that we foreigners studying another country also actually play a very important role. So as much as I see the point that, you know, local scholars should be, you know, at the forefront of some of these debates, it doesn't mean that some of us that have been studying these countries for decades don't have any interesting things to say. And I think the role of external actors, you know, academics based somewhere else is precisely that, to zoom out, to offer a bird's eye view on these perspectives. Sometimes, you know, like like in Norway, you know, I could, I would believe, I suppose, that I know how politics works and, you know, why certain things work well and they don't. But when an outsider comes and makes an observation, you know, sometimes it is surprising because, you know, we haven't noticed it. You know, you need somebody from the outside to to point these out to you. So I think there's a role for all actors. And I should also mention that it is funny, you know, in some of these uh, conversations I've had with my colleagues in Africa or in China or, or in Latin America, et cetera, you know, there is often this um, this puzzlement with uh, democracy, let's say how it works in the West or how it's not. And there's always this uh, this tendency, and I love it, you know, when there's a pushback saying, why is the West always saying that democracy doesn't work in Africa? There are all of these challenges with rigging of elections or whatever. Look at what's happening in the United States. You know, it's chaos. Look at Britain. It's chaos. You know, look at Italy. It's chaos. And and the whole of Europe. So why are you guys just saying that Africa is bad? So I love it, you know, in terms of, you know, Malawi and saying, look at, yes, we may be poor, 
But of all the countries in the last couple of years that have actually made progress on democracy, Malawi is at the forefront. You know, a constitutional court actually annulled the elections. There was a fresh election that was, uh, you know, ordered last year and a new regime is in place. It's another matter altogether that this new regime isn't doing that well. But but in terms of democratic rights and freedoms, Malawi has made enormous progress. And the same can't really be said of many of these very well-established, long traditional democracy. So I, I love it that, you know, Africans can say, hey, look at Kenya and Malawi. They're doing well on certain things and perhaps are doing even better than the United States or Great Britain on some of these indicators. I think the reason why an African country can actually do better sometimes, too, is that they don't take certain things for granted. Yeah. That an American or a European does based on their history. Like Americans will say all the time, well, it's never happened before in the United States. <laughs> That's never happened before. I can't imagine that happening. That's impossible. But when you take a global perspective, you start seeing a lot of things that do happen because just the cases are more expanded. And if they happen, it allows people to understand, well, how do I deal with it when it happens? Yeah. You know, you look at other countries in the world, there are plenty of successful impeachments. And it raises the question of, is that an undemocratic usurpation of the legislature? Is that something that is an expression of democracy in terms of making sure that you don't have a tyrant controlling the country? And what does it mean? And what are the bad outcomes? What are the good outcomes? And it helps you actually think through those problems when when you actually have to experience them or at least learn about them. Yeah. So, you know, in the show, for me, one a topic that is often you know, that, that often crops up is this democracy development relationship because the show is about development and trying to get there. How do we get there? You know, how can we sustain development? And there, you know, as you know, Justin, there is the academic literature, you know, is, is a bit uh, unclear because democracies do have the long-term sort of benefits of achieving development. Again, as Amartya Sen and many others say, it's the um, the intrinsic, I mean, we can, we love democracy perhaps because it has intrinsic value, right? We like the smell of democracy, you know, we we like the freedom of speech, the right to assemble, all of that. But democracy also provides the instrumental value of freedom that we actually, because we can debate, because we know what our needs are, because these are articulated to the leaders, to the powers that be, that they are told, they're aware what this, what these needs are. So democracy has both that intrinsic and instrumental value in promoting development. And yet, you know, there's this frustration in many parts of the world. Again, going back to the African continent, where a lot of my students, a lot of my colleagues are disillusioned, you know, with what democracy has brought. And so there again, there's always this interest in better understanding why is Rwanda doing so much better? You know, there's this idea that the, the president of Rwanda, Paul Kagame, is a visionary leader. You know, he makes these, this, these decisions that are much more long-term oriented. Uh, Paul Kagame is not worried about winning elections because, I mean, he's won them all and he's president for life in any case. But there is this hunger to know about 
you know, models of development. The Chinese model is, again, something that we discuss in the show quite a lot. Why is China doing so well? At least the middle class in China has um, has been living much better than they were, uh, you know, a few decades ago. China alone has lifted over a half a billion people out of poverty in 20 years. How is that possible in a non-democratic setting? So I think these conversations that both you and I have on our shows are important to nuance the debate that, you know, sometimes we think that we know the answer, that democracy is the only way. But I think we have to also pay attention to those who say, you know, we want development first. You know, democracy can come later. You know, you, you I can't just um, survive on freedom alone. I also need bread. And I think we need to give them that answer that they deserve as to why democracy is better or perhaps not as good as non-democratic systems in delivering quick development and why we should actually make a good, maybe even a business case for democracy. So I think these are the kind of debates that our shows hopefully are providing, are facilitating, and then we're creating an arena for a much more nuanced discussion than just saying, you know, yes or no, this is good and that is bad. I, I really think we should be um, providing further details and further nuance and providing examples, case studies based on research in terms of what is working and what is not. Have you have you come across the recent book from uh, Ji Lu and Yun Han Chu, Understandings of Democracy? At- no, I haven't, but maybe I should. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, to read it, you, you um, should. They so Ji Lu is actually out of China. Yunnan Chu is um, is out of Taiwan, mm-hmm. and if I remember right, he's uh, part of Asia Barometer. You might actually know them. Uh, they've they've been at Stanford uh, on mm-hmm. occasion. They uh, they had a recent book in the Journal of Democracy called Trading Democracy for Governance, but their book, Understandings of Democracy, takes it to a whole new level where they're doing exactly what you described, where they're looking at different ideas of democracy. They look at essentially in terms of democracy as an end in itself, which is the way that people in the West do, versus democracy as a means to an end, which is closer to the way China tries to describe itself as democracy. Yeah in terms of saying, oh, well, it matters in terms of the level of governance and stuff. And the way, and not so much in terms of what politicians describe, but in the terms of the way that people themselves think about it. And it's it's fascinating. It talks about a lot of the concepts that you're that you're talking about, but their their big goal is how do we get to a point that democracy delivers both. Right. That that is both an end in itself and it achieves the means and is a means to the other ends that we want to achieve. So, you know, one conversation that, that I really enjoyed is the last, the, the final episode of season three. Um, I had a chat with my friend, Daron Asimoglu from MIT. Um, he, together with James Robinson, of course, have written two best-selling books, Why Nations Fail, and, and the latest one is The Narrow Corridor. And what was really interesting there is, you know, the, the argument is that there's a very narrow corridor for, for democracies to actually achieve development. And you need a strong state, but you also need a strong civil society. And the trouble that often arises in many parts of the world, including in our parts of the world, Justin, is when, you know, either the state becomes too powerful or the civil society becomes too powerful and undermines the state. So, 
you know, maintaining the legitimacy of the state while also making sure that citizens actually have a say is going to be important. But the argument in that book, the narrow corridor, is that state and society have to be running at the same sort of at the same pace. They have to be running fast, equally fast, you know, and they term it as the uh, Red Queen effect, you know, it's like Alice in Wonderland, you know, you, you, you can't slack off. And I think that really is, is, is an interesting argument, right? I mean, uh, we, we can't really take things for granted. And, you know, being a European, looking at your democracy, of course, you know, it seems to me that those were some of the issues that you were grappling with during the Trump administration. And even now, right? I mean, you mentioned polarization, it's just mind-boggling for us, you know, what is going in the U.S. Why is scientific evidence not given the kind of attention? I mean, you know, there are certain facts that you can't ignore, and yet people argue without referring to those facts, and they make up their own arguments, and, and they make, well, th that is fine, but making up their own facts in the process. So there's certain things that are just mind-boggling in terms of how polarized your society has become. And, and the kind of role that the media and civil society is playing. And, and so these are some of the conversations we've been having in terms of how democracy is viewed from different parts of the world. You know, the Chinese say that they actually have a democratic system. You know, it, it's very fair. You know, people elect them. And, um, and so, yeah, and the same is with India. You know, a lot of people are now saying recent reports are showing that India is not always classified as the world's largest democracy, but is often classified as an electoral autocracy. So the different versions of this. And so, you know, the show has given me that opportunity, the platform, Justin, to really nuance the idea of development, you know, seen from different angles, the different versions of, democ uh, of democracy or, or of development that, that people um, um, have, the kind of different ideas, the different perspectives. And I think, and I'd, I'd like to hear your perspectives on this too, I think the, uh, the podcast as a medium is just absolutely fantastic to discuss these issues, right? It, the podcast is, is so much more dynamic than a paper because you go back and forth. Somebody says something and then you're, you're talking to them directly. And the thing that people don't understand about, about writing is that it's not quite as static as people think. Everybody's referring to other people. It, the more that you read, the more that you feel like you're part of a conversation. And what's such a challenge for people when they first jump in and they first read academic research or really any kind of nonfiction, to be honest, is that you get lost because people refer to different ideas exactly. and different scholars. Yeah. And you get lost because you're actually entering the middle of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And people think, oh, well, I need to find a way to enter at the beginning. There is no beginning to the conversation. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I think a very key point, as we were discussing before the recording started, is that I never actually provide any questions to my uh, guests. I have some notes for myself. I read the book or the books. I know basically what they are, you know, arguing but I think it is extremely important to just zoom out, you know, to generalize and come up with these general points rather than going into detail. There's always the chance, and we, as I'm sure you do too, like you have the show notes, right? I mean, if you're really interested, you can go in and read the details, but we really need to keep it 
at a very general level, because otherwise the main sort of message gets a bit lost in 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 translation. And that's why I think the podcast format is just so great. As you said, it's a back and forth. And I make it a, a point to say it's not a Q&A. You know, this is not an interview. It's a conversation because I too have my own views and perspectives. And I sometimes respectfully disagree with my own, my guests, right? I mean, and that, that is the privilege that we have. We can't just, you know, we're not just interested in hearing what others say, but actually also confronting them and challenging them. I think that is extremely important. And that is a function that we should all perform as podcast hosts too, I believe. And I think in when you're talking to somebody who's done important research, I think one of the things that's lost is that within the book, articles, all of the different publications, it's easy to lose yourself inside of the data. Mm-hmm. And the real question that I always want to know is what does this mean like, what is the implication of your findings? Like, I'm willing to set aside the methodology and say, okay, I'm just going to trust that you did that portion right. Not because I can't go in and challenge it, but because if I do, it gets away from the real question, which is, okay, let's assume that all of that research is accurate. What does that mean? How are we supposed to live? How are we supposed to do things differently? Yeah. What are we supposed to do? And that's the question that oftentimes is lost because in academic debates, it's oftentimes about, well, maybe you should have modeled your regression like this instead of asking themselves, well, what does that mean for actual governance? What does that mean for society? So I think, you know, some of this relates to the pressure in terms of publications to be able to meet the criteria that we academics have. That is the the, the source of our legitimacy, our uh, reputation. But what the podcast does does as a medium is to actually enable us to generalize and to feel comfortable about generalizing without being criticized for for spreading ourselves too thinly, you know? So the, 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 the typical criticism of academics is that, oh, you know, you don't know much. You, don't, you haven't really gone into depth, but you're just sort of broad brushing things. And I think um, if you can do a bit of both, you have the details and you have a specific focus in your publications and yet you're challenged to generalize, I think that would that is the best sort of combination. And that is exactly why, Justin, I felt podcast as a medium is just perfect for me. And I can't fathom out why I haven't done this earlier. And uh, again, thanks to COVID, you know, I... I found the, the the time and the interest and, and the motivation to do so, because it's just wonderful to have an article, to have a book, and then use this channel to actually disseminate to a broad audience. Well, Dan, thanks so much for joining me. I want to plug your podcast one more time. It's In Pursuit of Development. And I, I'm absolutely floored with the type of conversations that you continue to have. The guests that you have are oftentimes some of the most well-renowned. But like you said, it's not just the well-known guests. Oftentimes it's the hidden gems that you're able to bring to a wider audience that sometimes cause us to completely change our minds and to think about things entirely differently. And it's just such a well-done podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. 
Justin, the pleasure was all mine. I'm a big fan of your show too. And thank you so much for inviting me uh, to speak with you today. If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends because word of mouth goes a very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.